My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Welcome back for episode two. Last week, we heard the story of my dad, Frank, who has the behavioral variant of FTD. Today, we're going to introduce you to Maria's mom, Leah, who has the language variant PPA as well as ALS. FTD can present itself in many different ways, and we are so thankful you're here to learn more. Let's have a listen. again, just the two of us. We are here to talk about your mom. First, let's get her name. So my mom's name is Amalia. It's Greek. And she went by Leah, just to make it easier for everybody. So yes, I think it's a beautiful name, Amalia. But we'll just call her Leah. Okay. And I think... She will be 56 when everyone else is hearing this. Is that right? Yes. And when was she diagnosed? Tell us a little bit about how it happened. Sure. Sort of the story behind it. So I'm going to just preface this by saying that I come from a big family. There's four of us kids. And I'm going to tell this whole story through my eyes. Okay. So I remember being at the pool in the summer of 2016 as a family and getting so irritated with my mom's behavior because she, her, she wasn't making any sense. She kept repeating the same things over and over again. And we had all been feeling like something wasn't right. We didn't know what it was. She wasn't making sense. She was repeating the same words. She was fixating on topics And I just remember like with tears in my eyes, turning to my dad and being like, when are we going to take care of this? Mm. What is going on? So shortly after that, my dad took my mom to a primary care physician and they did some sort of base level cognitive test Mm -hmm. and they suggested the major um, hospital that they were affiliated with for my mom to go be evaluated there. For follow-up testing? Yes. Okay. I later learned that basically a doctor told my dad she has FTD. She has an early onset dementia. There's nothing we can do. If you want, you can come back and check in with us at some point and just tell us how she's doing. And that was it. This was the doctor from the hospital? This was the, the hospital. Primary. Okay. Yes. And they didn't really seem to be the experts in this particular disease, which people will learn as they listen to this podcast that there are many people that don't even, doctors who don't even know what this is. But anyway, they said, this is what she has. Good luck. Oh, and we also think she might have ALS, but you should do some more testing. 
So they just drop the bomb of this horrible neurological disease until you guys maybe come back and check in. Yeah. Cause my dad was like, okay, what do we do next? Like, what's the follow up? And they were like, you can come back if you want and just let us know when she, how she's doing. So my dad being who he is, he actually talked back to the doctor a little bit and he said, how does it feel to be a neurologist who says, this is what your wife has, can't tell you what to do about it and just send me home. And the guy was like, sorry, we don't really specialize in it here. And my dad was just like, this is BS, honestly. And he left there and he looked into who is doing the most in Boston right now for this disease. And he found MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital, which is world renowned. And they actually have a dedicated FTG unit, which works in tandem with an ALS unit. They share their space and the doctors do kind of work together in a way. Let me clarify something really quick. Sure. When she got the diagnosis from the neurologist that doesn't know much about it, were they confirming an ALS diagnosis as well? Or it was maybe go ahead and look into that on your own? Yes, because if I remember correctly, my mom was having some very visible twitching in her arms. Hmm. And I think that must have come up as you know, one of her symptoms and they said, you know, you need to explore this. Mm -hmm. So my dad did a ton of research and he called MGH and he said, I live 30 minutes away. If you ever have a cancellation, I can be there in 30 minutes. And I think it might've been a month later, he was able to get in and they confirmed the ALS diagnosis they confirmed the FTD diagnosis and the bedside manner that we were shown was totally opposite from the first experience. So Dr. Dickerson, who started the FTD unit, he sat with my dad and I understanding our challenges, the things that we were witnessing with my mom, learning more about her history and he listened and gave us a very thorough explanation of, you know, the tau protein in her brain and answered all of our questions. And although it was very painful, I remember crying and just being like, how is this my life right now? And in MGH with my mom and dad, and she has this devastating disease, but I felt like someone was on our side and someone was going to help us through this. And one of the great things about MGH is that they have like a care support team. They, they have someone who runs a support group, who checks in with the family. And that actually is an angel on earth. Katie Brandt, the director of caregiver support services. She did weekly calls with my dad to help him figure out different things for my mom's care They basically had a checklist for my dad of these are the things that you're going to want to be on top of right now. These are the things that are coming down the pipeline. I mean, we couldn't have gone to a more perfect place to get support on something that really has no cure, but they 
they don't accept it like that. They, they say, what can we do for the caregivers? You know, they really put in the time to support our family. So, so you felt like they were full of resources. Absolutely. It's like a, a clinic. So you go and, and they have the th- same thing set up for ALS where it's like you go meet with the occupational therapist and the speech therapist and someone that helps, you know, with feeding concerns and you meet with all these different specialists that help my mom be as comfortable as possible, help my dad feel as supported as possible. So let's jump back into the story. When your mom went to MGH, she got the diagnosis confirmed. Okay. It's ALS and FTD. Was she present for that? And she was. Do you know, or did she say that it registered with her? Um, I believe that it did. I remember her coming home and just saying, I can walk. I, I can walk. I, I kind of reassuring us like, I don't have ALS, like I'm strong. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if she really understood how serious it was. She was telling me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. So I, I mean, she was there. I, I remember sometimes at appointments, she looked a little angry at the doctors because she didn't, she didn't want to hear what they were saying. Right. So that makes me think that she was somewhat present. So it took several months between, you know, from the primary care to the big Boston hospital to then MGH to the confirmed ALS diagnosis. I mean, that was probably a span of six months. Okay. So at the point when we kind of had the full picture, my mom was really not communicating well. It had progressed so quickly. And she was diagnosed with primary progressive aphasia, so the language variant. Mm-hmm. So did you notice, along with the kind of different behavior, the speech was the next thing to become affected? Or were you more concerned with the speech? Because in my case, my dad just changed behaviorally his speech now he can't speak but that wasn't a big concern at the time it was more like why is he not showering right so with my mom I would say the things that we had noticed with her behaviors felt like they could be explained away as depression anxiety her youngest daughter is leaving the nest and going to college soon. She's been a stay-at-home mom for 30 years, and now her life is kind of taking this turn. My mom, I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot more later, but my mom is an artist, and she's very quirky, so maybe we thought she was leaning into that a little bit. (laughs) So the behavioral things were not what led us to think something was wrong. That, That could be explained with all these different uh, possibilities. But when her language was so challenging, that's what made me think even before the diagnosis, I remember telling my best friend, I know that whatever this is that my mom has, it's never going to get better. I think when somebody can't speak properly, it's a little jarring. Right. Would you say her speech was, she couldn't find the words 
or they just weren't cohesive or she was using the wrong words for certain things? What did you notice? At the beginning, I would say very limited vocabulary. She couldn't find the right words sometimes. And remember when you said your dad would say, clean and sober. So it my was like mom a, like would a, say the same phrases over and over. Like, it's funny now, I guess. But she would say, it's five o'clock somewhere. Uh-oh. Like, she would just say the same things. And we'd be like, does she not have any other words? Yeah. I mean, I think we can look back now and and see more than maybe we were seeing before. But I mean, she definitely wasn't speaking as much. I think that was probably something that people maybe attributed to thinking she was having some sort of um, mental health issues because she was very short with people and that anyone who knew her knew that wasn't who she was. So I think... You know, there are definitely, I think as I talk to people, there are some overlaps between behavioral and Mm -hmm. PPA because there definitely were some behavioral things early on too, but they weren't so outrageous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could just say, oh, this person is depressed or this person is pissed at me. Right. So take us now to, you guys got the diagnosis you're, you know, learning all about this. You're trying to kind of navigate this new world. What are you noticing in your mom? We started encountering a lot more behavioral issues, I guess you could say. She always wanted to be out of the house. So it was very challenging that we couldn't, we couldn't keep her in the house. We couldn't keep her If we went to a restaurant, she would try and leave. You know, she couldn't really fully communicate with people or make good decisions. So it was really scary when she would wander. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember that being a very frustrating period of time because you're looking at someone who looks like a healthy adult And you're telling, you're basically treating them like a child and saying, no, we have to stay here right now. It's like the things that I say to my two-year-old, you know. When she would bolt wherever she was, restaurant, park, wherever, would she explain, I'm uncomfortable here, I want to move, or it was just how you said, like a a child, oh, I see something and I'm, I'm off. She could never articulate at that point. I would say the quickest decline was her language. So she was diagnosed in the fall of 2016. My son was born in the summer of 2018. And by the time he was born, she could barely speak at all. So it felt so fast how she lost her language. I think probably the last year of her really having some language, it was only a few words. And those repetitive um, sentences. So it was very difficult to communicate with her when she had any behavioral things because she couldn't tell us what she wanted. Sometimes she would just laugh, which is really frustrating as well when you're like, 
um, we're sitting in church right now. You can't go to all the other pews and start holding everyone's hands. We need to focus and let everybody be. And she would just laugh. So she had a form of apathy as well, where she absolutely yes, um, which was really challenging. I remember one time I was when I was maybe eight months pregnant. I thought I had an eye on her, and she bolted when I was on a conference call. And I found her, you know, halfway down the road on a busy road, and I was so frustrated and she just was laughing. She didn't, it's just frustrating, you know, and you don't want to treat your mother like a child. Right. You don't want to reprimand your mom and you don't want to think she's doing it on purpose. You know, she's not, but it's just, it's so hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you guys, again, you got the diagnosis, you noticed a big decline in her speech. What was her physical with the ALS? What was that like. So the ALS really didn't present itself in the beginning, um, like outwardly. So I believe what the doctors would say at MGH is that her FTD was more progressive than the ALS. Okay. The thing that I noticed with the ALS was really the muscle in her hands. Her hands became very thin and Uh, She lost all her muscle in her hands and then her arms. It all kind of started at the top half of her body. And then it, it wasn't until maybe the last year or so that she had challenges walking. And then within the last few months, she can no longer walk. So my whole thing was, I didn't really know what FTD was. I knew what ALS was, especially because we got the diagnosis not long after the ice bucket challenge. So when I learned that my mom had ALS, I knew that meant she didn't have a lot of time because typically with ALS, the life expectancy is two to five years. Mm -hmm. So when my dad told me we've confirmed the ALS diagnosis, I knew I wanted to spend as much time with her as possible. And I came home And I looked at my husband and he said, you're going to want to live there, right? And I said, yeah. And we left our city apartment and moved in with my parents for several years to just soak up that time and to help Mm -hmm. care for her as long as, as long as I could while maintaining some sort of a life. Yeah. But after I had my son, about six months after he was born, we moved out. And at that point, there was not, from what I personally feel, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for interaction between my mom and I. When I was pregnant, we would have tea time and she couldn't talk, but I would put on a movie and we'd sit together and it felt like we were together and she was present. But you know, as time went on, it just felt like what we could share together. um, I don't know. It was just very different. Mm -hmm. It's almost difficult in speaking personally. When I go and visit my dad, it's hard for me to just be with somebody who one cannot speak, 
I have to keep the conversation going. I have to be the one to, you know, smile and be happy when I'm not. And that in itself is difficult. So I couldn't imagine being with it all the time and not being able to not reach her, but, you know, connect or feel connected to her. Right. I think it'll be very important almost for our own healing that we're going to do a side episode about losing a parent while becoming a parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because not even- That's a different kind of hell. That's a different kind of uh, grief. Because when she was really declining in her language and ability to really connect, Mm -hmm. I was a new mom struggling, looking at my beautiful mom who- is the perfect example of a mother in my eyes. And all I wanted to do was say, how did you feel? And did you breastfeed? And, you know, am I doing this right? Or I wanted the encouragement and I wanted to share it with her. I didn't want to cry on this podcast, but I'm definitely (laughs) going to cry instead. And I, I chose this instead. I was watching her slip away as I was starting my life and it was all under one roof and each day I felt just a crazy amount of grief Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and loss because the loss felt stronger because I I needed I really needed my mom then right you know of course so So where is she now? Is she at home? Is she in a nursing facility? She is at home with my dad. It is his life's mission to keep her at home. And I believe that is where she will stay. Um, Prior to COVID, she was going to an adult daycare five days a week, which was giving my dad time to work, have a breather, not be a full-time nurse. Mm -hmm. But with COVID, my dad is a full-time nurse mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, an executive and, and he is a deacon at our church. <laughs> I mean, he's, I call him a superhero because I just, I know that I couldn't do what he's doing. It really feels like supernatural to me, but yeah, he does her feedings. She um, has had a feeding tube for a little over a year now. About a year ago, she couldn't even drink water. She was choking. Um, We pureed all her foods and thickened uh, liquids and we did everything we could until we really had the choice laid out in front of us. So, so yeah. That's where we're at right now. And what does all of this feel like for you? It feels different every week. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you can relate to that, but it feels, I don't know. It's, you know, it comes in waves and I feel like right now I'm at a place where I'm telling myself that this is what she wants. She wants to be here as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm praying every day that she's not in pain. You know, hospice nurses come and they check on her. She doesn't seem agitated. She doesn't really seem to be in any pain. 
I just pray for the best for her. And I just know that through doing things like this podcast and my business, that's, you know, basically a tribute to her. That's how I keep her close. And when I do things with my son that I know my mom would do with me, I just, I feel her with us, which sounds weird because she's alive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really, I mean, it, it just, it changes all the time. I think there's so many side episodes we could have about, <laughs> you know, finding your support group and finding those friends that are just with you through this or finding your outlet for your rage or sadness um, because it's really, really, really hard. Yeah. You said it right. Is that what's so challenging is that it changes constantly. One you're thinking, Oh, you know, for me, my dad had a great life. He was happy you know, he felt loved. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, he's, he's okay. And then I think, well, look at everything that he's missed. Or I'll say, look at everything that he's missed. And then I'll say, but look at the life he had. He was loved. He was happy. Right. So it's a juggling act of emotions and maintaining some sense of normalcy at the same time right. for you, for your new family. And then keeping the piece of her that you want to remember. And I think that's where I struggle because I don't want to remember him like this. Right. Um, But this is part of his story. So it's, I think you said it right. It changes every, for me, it's like almost every day. Okay. So you're a little ahead. Yeah. Okay. 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 (laughs) Yeah. All right. So I'm not alone in this. (laughs) No, no, not at all. And I think now would be a good time for you to talk about who she was before FTD and ALS. What was she like and what was her life like? I know you mentioned that she was an artist. Is that how you remember her as just as an artist? There's a lot to say about who she is. And I don't think necessarily she would say, I just want to be remembered as like this artist. Mm -hmm. So a little background about my mom. My mom's parents were immigrants from Greece. Mm -hmm. My grandmother came over, uh, immigrated to the U.S., with my mom in her belly at like seven months. Oh, grandma. Yeah. (laughs) And she, they were from a tiny village on an island called Naxos. And they basically only spoke Greek. And my mom was from a young age. She only spoke Greek. So when she went to kindergarten, she said that she couldn't communicate with other kids. Mm -hmm. And people would make fun of her and she really struggled in her early years of school because she didn't speak English. And I think a lot of the things that she went through in her life, she turned them into a positive and she said, I'm not going to let this happen to my kids. She, I just think was just such a pure, um, is such a pure soul who. I don't know. I don't, I've thought a lot about what I was going to say and now I almost feel speechless because it's just so hard to, it's so hard. I'm asking people to do this and I can't do it myself. (laughs) 
I think she kind of lived her whole life with, I just want to show people kindness because I think a lot of periods of her life, she struggled and, and she, she didn't ever want anyone to feel any pain that she felt. Mm -hmm. She dedicated her life to God. She was extremely um, devout and not just, you know, going to church every week and sitting in the pews and praying. She, she was a true servant where she always was helping those in need. And there are so many examples of that, but one that's personal to me is I remember in middle school, I met a girl during gym class and she told me that her family didn't have a place to live. And I came home really sad and, you know, my mom was my best friend. I told her everything and I told her all about this girl. Fast forward, my mom got this girl's mother into a shelter and then eventually into a permanent residence. I mean, my mom had dedicated months and months and months to helping this woman who was virtually a stranger. Mm -hmm. I brought it up to my dad the other day and he was like, oh yeah. I mean, my mom did so many things like this that nobody even knows about because that's just who she was. She really was someone who would find people who people ignored Mm -hmm. and she wanted to help them. Mm -hmm. And she was like, she was like a true philanthropist, but not in what you think of as like, you know, having fancy galas or anything Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, she, she was behind the scenes helping people trying to use the church to, to get resources for people that Mm -hmm. she would meet. And she just, that was, that was her life. Um, I mean, aside from, of course, being a wife and a mother to four kids, um, she met my dad in college. This is a very important part of her story. She would want me to talk about. Yeah, the love Uh, story. So my mom met my dad in college. My mom went to the University of Maryland and my dad went to the U.S. Naval Academy, which is I think a half an hour away. So one of her sorority sisters knew a bunch of the midshipmen would invite them to parties. And they met at a, it's such a eighties college story. They met at like a sorority crush party in February of, I don't know, 1984, maybe by Thanksgiving, they were engaged And then my dad was graduating from the Naval Academy and was going to be sent somewhere. They weren't sure. So they planned their, their big wedding um, right after my dad's graduation. And they were just, I mean, they were, yes, they were so young. My mom was 20 when she got married, but I think both her and my dad maybe had some things that they didn't love about their childhoods or they ha- they they both had this picture of how they wanted to live their life that just matched mm-hmm. and they were just true partners true true partners so I, I think my mom always called my dad like her <laughs> her knight in shining armor because she just really felt like her life began when she met my dad 
And she got all these beautiful things that she always dreamed of and kind of started to design the life that she wanted for herself. What was she like as a mom? Oh my God. The most selfless woman, just super thoughtful, always there. It's just so hard to even put into words, I guess. It's hard because it's something I feel. She was incredible. You could, she devoted her life to us. We were her everything. And she told us that all the time. She never wanted us to feel any pain. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just throwing that out there, but she never wanted us to be in pain. She always wanted to be nurturing. My dad and I have talked about this a lot. My mom just couldn't understand how people could be so mean. She'd say it all the time. So she just was so gentle and kind, just sweet and devoted and loving and, and always there. Mm. Just like your dad. Yeah. Is that how you see yourself as a mother? Do you see her in the way that you mother your son? I try to be, to emulate her. Mm -hmm. Uh, I definitely can see my love for Liam being, you're making me cry, girl. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see my love for Liam being similar Mm -hmm. to the love she had for me Mm -hmm. and just the dedication to him. And also, I mean, life is not all rainbows and butterflies. My mom was very hard on herself and you can see it in her art and her journals where all she wanted to do was be a better mom. And she always wanted to push herself to be better. And I'm the exact same way. (laughs) I haven't learned. I haven't learned. I mean, I don't know how she questioned herself so much because myself and all of my friends and loved ones see her as just an example of an incredible mother, but she always wanted to be better. Well, isn't that sort of like you're saying, I, I feel guilty taking this time away. Right. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, my kids are gone for two nights. What am I going to do? But they're thinking my mom's the best. Right. Right. So I, that's what I, I have to remind myself. Oh, and I'm, I mean, I need a little post-it in the mirror because I am guilt ridden. If I go wash my car for 20, I mean, it's awful, but it sounds like your mom had an outlet in the art. Yes, that was okay. her outlet. And that was something that she really didn't dive into until I was in high school. So wow. It was very hectic in our house because there's four of us kids that play, you know, a hundred sports each and they're involved in a million activities and have a million friends and on and on and on. And I think life really, it was crazy. She was like Mm -hmm. a chauffeur (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I think she just maybe got to a point where she realized she needed something for herself and she read this book, Filling Open, The Art of Becoming Yourself. and like changed her world. And she just really decided to dive into art. She had always had a love of art, but she just never pursued anything for herself. 
And even when she dived into the art, she never sold anything. She never tried to profit off of it. She never tried to turn it into any sort of business. What she did was she started a blog called Art Junk. And Art Junk was all about her daily art adventures. And little did I know, my siblings know, that my mom was basically famous online and had a following of artists from like all over. And not only would she talk about the different art that she would make, one of the main things that she would do was art journaling, but there's a lot of beautiful messages in her blog about just really profound thoughts about enjoying life and practicing gratitude and serving others all intertwined with like beautiful art and tutorials Mm -hmm. on art. And I think that people just really resonated with her charming personality. And eventually she ended up meeting the artist, Sabrina Ward Harrison, who wrote that book. And she actually dragged me to a retreat with this woman and they became very good friends And I thought it was the coolest thing ever because it was basically my mom's idol that she met. And this woman, they really connected and became close friends. And Sabrina had come to visit our family many times. The Art for Amelia event that I held for my mom, the fundraiser last year, Sabrina painted a beautiful painting for it. She's, look her up. She's she's an incredible artist, but I think it just goes to show, I think the art really, it was just something my mom did for herself and she shared with others and she really impacted a lot of lives. And I know that now because of the art for Amalia Instagram page. And once people started to learn of my mom's diagnosis, I started getting messages from people saying, your mom is the reason I'm an artist. I didn't really know the extent of how many people she had touched because I was a teenager that was like, my crazy mom is just online, like has a little blog. I actually turned to the blog once my mom couldn't speak anymore. I started reading it because I wanted, I wanted to hear her words. I wanted to remember the way she talked Mm -hmm. and I, as I started digging into it, I was like, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was amazing. And so I, I definitely think my mom would want to be remembered, I guess, for her art, but not, not solely that, but like the messages in her art, mm-hmm. the way that she treated people. I think she would want people to take the words from her blog and maybe think about people in a different way and soften their hearts a little bit and open up. I think having the pieces that your mom painted or art junked, I think that's a gift and something to be treasured. Yes. Because those are pieces of her. And even now when she's unreachable, I think she left that for you. That's a good piece to hold on to. Absolutely. I I totally agree. And I think it's also a reminder of when she was so vibrant and healthy, Mm -hmm. because that's when she really was creating was Mm -hmm. those good, the good good days, the good years. Yeah. The really happy, great years. Right. Well, she sounds 
very special. Sounds like she goes out of her way for other people and making other people feel happy and looked at. There's an infinite amount of examples of that that so many people could share. But yeah, really amazing. Well, I know that you have something that you want to share that she wrote or attempt to get your Kleenex. Yeah. (laughs) So like I said, my mom had a blog with almost 500 posts and I really encourage people to check it out. It's artjunk.typepad.com. And of course, you know, I thought about there's so many beautiful, very profound entries there, but I thought maybe I should share something that people can't find on the internet (laughs) that was for me. So similar to your letter, this is a letter that my mom gave me when I left for college. It's on a little crinkled up piece of um, just notebook paper. That's a framer. she, She gave this to me when I left and I went to college up in Boston. So, and my family was in DC at the time moved and I moved up here for school. So I was far, it was a big, it was a big move Mm -hmm. for a very close knit family, but it all worked out because we're all together again in Boston. So here it goes to Maria. Sometimes I feel invincible. Like I can climb a mountaintop. Sometimes I feel invincible, like I can run and never stop. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a dream. My husband really loves me and treats me like a queen. My kids are more precious than anything I've known. I can't believe how fast they've grown. Sometimes I feel like my heart will burst. The love I have for them always comes first. My oldest is a girl, so beautiful and true. She's given me more joy than I ever knew. The day she was born was my very best. She's given our home laughter with her blanket as a nest. That's an inside joke. (laughs) She will go to college and start another page. Her presence will be felt here for she is just like Jage. That's my youngest sister. Our hearts are always together although our locations will part, but only for a short time, as this is just the start. Her new adventures will bring her friends and love anew, but we are always here for her, for we are stuck together like glue. XOXO, Mama. Rachel and I want to thank you for listening. We were completely blown away by the response to episode one. So thank you for all of the beautiful messages that you sent. We'll be releasing new episodes each week on Mondays. Next week is the story of Katie Brandt and her husband, Mike. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. We've also set up a Facebook group called Remember Me Podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Association for FTD, you can do so on our Classy page, give.classy.org slash Podcast. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is by Bailey Kent. Bailey Kent.